0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 94, and it's a continuation of episode 93, where we were initially introduced to James Jenkins. Jenkins was one of the two autopsy technicians that was present that day at Bethesda and participated in the autopsy. Jenkins is believed to be one of the more credible witnesses to the events that occurred that evening. Well, we're just going to get right back into it. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 94 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.
1: It's not nefarious that he did that. It was just because what he, I could see what he was doing. I he you know I'm sure he just wanted the hands on and you know because the responsibility that that he had was great, and he wanted to make sure that he actually accomplished it. But anyway, so we proceeded with that. When we were almost finished with it, Dr. Humes came back in, and he had four flag officers following him. Uh, I didn't, at that time, I didn't know who these people were. Um, As they came into the morgue proper from the ante room, uh, the flag officers went into the gallery. And they came down to the end of the gallery and stood at the rail, uh, adjacent to the autopsy table that, where I was and the body was. Um, there, and then other people began to filter into the gallery, but nobody came, uh, nobody was allowed on the floor with us. And at that time, Dr. Humes um, and I know there was one other person that was with him doing that. And I believe, and st- and still do believe, that that was Dr. Fink. Now, Dr. Fink, in his report to his commanding officer, had said that he didn't arrive in the morgue until after the, the brain, I believe he stated, the brain, the lungs, and the heart were out of the body. But that doesn't seem to be it's actually suspect for the following reasons first of all when the the head was unwrapped then uh, Dr. Humes directed the uh, the photographer who who at that time was a corpsman uh, to take some uh, photographs of the head and he he took heads with a small camera uh what i assume was a 35 millimeter i i don't know much about photography but anyway it was not it was not a camera with a flash it was there were no lights or anything set up for it but they took a series of 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 photographs and then we started doing the x-rays when we uh Started setting up for the x rays, then the people in in the laboratory were again asked to leave because of the radiation involved in it. Uh, Portable x rays at that time were not really well shielded. So the people left, and that included, and I was told to stay, and I was given a lead apron to assist uh, the x ray technician and who I was later told was Gerald Custer. We took the first set of x-rays at the direction of Dr. Humes. Now, Dr. Humes didn't point to each thing that he wanted x ray He just told us he wanted he wanted laterals, uh, AP, and obliques and we did a uh, fairly unusual type of x-ray and the fact is it wasn't a full chest and it wasn't a full head. It, the cassette was placed where it, it would uh, show the upper part of the chest and, and upper thorax. And because of the length of it, it actually didn't clear the head. It probably came to about here. Uh, it, it was an unusual uh, type of x-ray you take. Uh, at the time, I really didn't think much about it because, you know, I was being directed what i was supposed to be doing and uh paul and i were we were the lowest people on the totem pole and whole morgue so there was no questioning of what we were told to do and so uh, those x-rays were taken by uh gerald custer to The uh, x-ray department because at that time you we developed x-rays in the tank That type of thing and then they were brought back. They were viewed by the pathologist Uh, There were no fragments No large fragments no no portion portion Bullets nothing of that nature was found in the x-rays This didn't seem to go well with the four people in the gallery uh, it was like almost like well you're not you're not finding what what's there or what's supposed to be found so we were told to repeat the x-rays well when Gerald Custer came back from the from developing the first set of x-rays uh, he had an assistant that came with him now I, I later was told his name was Read, I believe, right, and uh, they began to repeat the X-rays that that Cheryl and I had done in the beginning. Those were taken out and developed uh, again. No particles, no partial bullets, no, nothing of that nature. Uh, that seemed to increase the tension in the room between the four people in the gallery and the pathologist on the floor. So at that point in time, they sent for the radiologist. And um, Dr. Eversole came in, and he directed the taking of the x-rays uh, by Cheryl Custer and, and uh, Reed. Those were taken out, brought back. At the time that they brought those back, they brought in a large bank of X-ray view boxes. We only had, a, had two small view boxes on, on the back wall that they were looking at. And they put all of the X-rays up. At that point in time, there were, I think, probably most of the people that were allowed to in the room went back uh, to the back wall to, to look at the X-rays. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't go all the way back there, but from the distance that I, I could actually see the x-rays. Uh, at that time, I really didn't have the experience to, to read an x-ray. Uh, I could tell if it was a broken bone or a cloudy chest, but that was the extent of, of my abilities but i did view the x-rays and and the results was still the same no no fragments no partial bullets uh, nothing of that nature uh, i know that in, i have I, I know that there have been reports that there were bullets that fell out on the floor uh there were large fragments taken from the behind the ear uh things of that nature Uh, i i never saw that if it had occurred i think the four flag officers would have been dancing on the on the seats Uh, but anyway that never occurred after we did the x-rays uh dr fink and dr humes uh, began to examine the head and to a certain extent dr boswell was involved but he wasn't in the area of the head he was he was across the table from me and we were looking i was looking to my left down on what humes and boswell and then dr boswell was on the other side but uh, at that time dr fink actually found uh, a wound in the right temple and it was slightly forward of the ear and a little above it uh, Dr. Humes and Dr. Uh, Fink were discussing this wound uh, I could I could see the wound but it uh, it was in the hairline and the only reason I could see it, I could see the wound was because uh, Dr. Fink was you know they were moving the hair and and looking at it. and the wound had gray borders. It was um, wasn't exactly round. It was more of an oblong type thing, and it was about the size of one's tip of of, of the little finger. And Doctor Fink speculated that the graying may be from a from a bullet. Well. At that point in time, Dr. Humes was called to the gallery to talk to one of the military people. Uh, I later was told that that was uh, Dr. Berkeley, who was a physician's private uh, was a private physician for for uh, the president. He came back to the table immediately. He told Dr. Fink. We need to get back. We need to get back on the head wound. So they went back to examining the head wound, and the small wound in the right temple was never returned to that night. It was never re-examined. They they didn't turn to. They didn't return to the examination of it. There was never any conclusion as to whether it was actually a wound. Uh, a wound uh whether it was entrance exit uh, anything of that nature the um, after they began examining the head wound uh, they were examining it uh, basically what had happened was that you know we had when when the the secondary wrap on the head was taken off uh the wound had adhered to the wrap so When it was being taken off, the the wound actually kind of separated, and then when the when the wrapping was removed from or separated from the wound itself and removed, the the wound closed up back up, uh, with the exception of where bone and tissue was missing, and and consequently after that. Uh, like I said, we had we had done preliminary photographs uh, with Doctor Eversole coming in. Uh, Mr. Stringer, who was a civilian photographer and actually was in charge of the photography school there, uh, he came in and then he took over the, the uh, process of uh, photographing uh, what the doctors request, and that the photographs. Uh, were done all through, through the autopsy itself, at different stages, at the request of Dr. Fink, Dr. Humes, or Dr. Boswell. Wanted photographs of this. Um, there were many, many photographs taken, and uh, which today we we only see seven. And then there is also a question as to whether those seven were taken in the morgue that night or whether they were taken somewhere else Uh, it's not something that you can really you know I I can only allude to it I have no specific things other than I know that some of the photographs from the Fox photos do not appear to be taken in the war itself uh, for various reasons telephone in the in the wrong place uh, headrest that we never that i actually did autopsies in that ward for a little over a year and we never i never saw that headrest none of the other people who who were in my class that did autopsies ever saw that headrest and i'm not sure that that autopsy table where we usually did the autopsies really really had had the ability to have that headrest mounted on it so that was that was actually that's actually one of the things that that makes me believe that those photographs may or may not be taken in the uh, in the morgue, uh, the Bethesda morgue, the night that we did the autopsy. There are there is one autopsy, our uh, photograph that has the picture of the. The block, the headrest that we used, which was actually a, a horned block that you could rotate for different size uh, necks, and we always placed that under the neck because, as you were doing the autopsy, and actually uh, we we had already seen uh, minor rigor mortis in in almost every autopsy that we did, uh, so you wanted to make sure that. That whenever uh, the mortis set in, that it would not be difficult to be able to uh, position the body in, normally in the in the casket when it was prepared. Um, the other other thing that we said is that uh, in one of the um, photographs, there is something that that we really can't. Uh, Paul and I both uh, believed that it was some type of. Well, Paul, I think Paul described it as an animal cage, but it but it seemed to be some kind of box that was not present anymore. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the position that that appeared, there was an old field, army field X-ray unit that set there uh, with a sheet over it. Uh, we very rarely used it because uh, when we did use it, it radiated everybody that was in the morgue, everybody was in the hallway, uh, anyway, anyway, or in the galley that was across the hall. So, as I said, it was more or less used as, a, as the last resort when we couldn't get a portable X ray from the X ray unit with a technician uh some of the other thing was uh concerning the telephone and one of the photographs there's there appears to be a telephone on the wall uh directly adjacent uh to the table the telephone in the morgue was actually it by the deep sink that just before you go into the hallway where the brain room, uh, the dirty linen room was, and at the end of that short hall, there was a dressing room. Um, That phone, the the telephone was uh, memorable because it had a old telephone curly cord on it, but it was was so long that it could reach anywhere in the morgue. And uh, so it was, again, unusual and memorable. We uh, from there, we, you know we we progressed. Uh, Dr. Humes uh, actually removed the brain uh, and some of the uh, the wound actually spread open and in return. Uh, that's significant in in two aspects. Uh, first of all, to remove the brain, that only had to be extended a short period of time Uh, he also made a coronal suture from that suture down to the tragus which is this part of the ear Uh, because of the fracture in in the right side of the head it it was extremely malleable you can move it around with your hand all we had to do was to separate those two You could almost fold down the side where he he did the the incision, and the brain was right there, and it could be removed. Uh, As Dr. Humes was removing the brain, he made a statement, uh, kind of an utterance to himself, about, well, you know, the damn thing almost fell out my hand. I didn't think much of it because I assumed that a bullet, fragment, or something that severed the spinal cord. Consequently, we could remove the brain. Anyway, Dr. Humes removed the brain. He handed it to Dr. Boswell, who was directly across the table from me. Dr. Boswell motioned for me to follow him. We went over to the bucket. The bucket was approximately a two-gallon stainless steel bucket that we put formalin in. And then we, had, had, we always strung a gauze sling over the bucket where we would take the brain, turn it upside down, lay it in the sling, and we would infuse the brain through the internal carotids, uh, which are the vessels at the base of the brain. We by placing needles, in, uh, needles into the carotids, tying them off, and we had a carboy, which was a, gla- a 55, well, it 5-gallon, I guess it was, a uh, large glass bottle is what it really was and it had it had a system on it where we could the tubing came down split in a Y we put the needles on and then we would open up the stopcock and allow the formula to flow into the vascular system of the brain while we were doing the autopsy. At the end of the autopsy we usually would disconnect that, drop the brain in the bucket, put a lid on it, and place it in the brain room. Um, and to allow it to fix. Uh, once the brain we 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 went over doctor Boswell, I I had you know, we had to kneel down. I kneeled down. I don't know when Doctor Boswell handed me the brain, I turned it upside down and tried to put the needles on uh, it was little it was unusual uh in that the internal carides had retracted uh and they were also shriveled a little bit now the retraction is not so unusual uh arteries have a musculature to them and they'll snap back whenever you when you cut them but these were actually retracted as if they had been cut for some time. Uh, they had begun to shrivel. I had time I had difficulty getting the needles in because the needles were trying to go through the wall of the of the vessels. Uh, there was one of the residents that was running errands and messages and so forth that had come in to see doctor Boswell. He saw that I was having problems and he he also tried was unsuccessful but eventually I did get get the needles in get the bo- uh, the brain set up for infusion Dr. Uh, Boswell and I went back to the table at that point in time they had retracted the scalp uh, away from the wound uh, you could actually see the true borders limitations of the wound and uh, we had be- began to uh, to examine that part of it. At that time, uh, Dr. Boswell uh, uh, signaled to me, we to, we were going to uh, and, and did begin the autopsy of the body proper. Um, Dr. Fink and Dr. Humes continued examining the head at that point in time. Uh, you can actually see, see that when the scalp was reflected back, uh, the, the fractured bone and so forth that was adhered to the scalp, some of that had fallen away and fallen into the cranium, which actually made the wound appear larger than it actually was. And, uh we uh dr boswell made the incision uh we took the striker saw we uh cut the breastplate out of course and then we removed the organs from the body placed them on a cutting board at that when we started that at that time i placed the cutting board which was kind of a small table over the president's body it had a it had a uh a scale on one end of it uh, that we used to weigh the materials that we needed to weigh and we did a a little unusual handling of of the organs at bethesda Uh, we actually took the whole unit of organs out as as one unit placed it and we dissected the organs and separated from each other then uh, the organs were dissected examined um, and specimens were taken for um, microscopic exams Uh, usually the procedure that we we had was we would take we would take a a specimen from uh, appearing normal section of an organ and then if we had if we wanted to take a section for for somewhere where there maybe there was a lesion or a contusion or something of that nature we would take a section there that way we had a reference Uh, we did that we placed those samples in the jars uh the normal dissection of the organs the heart uh stomach liver uh, was was accomplished we, we just we did the normal autopsy in in the body proper uh, during the time that we had the organs out of the body uh, dr boswell wanted to do the section of this the stomach and so forth um, I think if this was this was pretty much into the argument. I mean, the autopsy itself is it's. I mean, it's too lengthy and to go detail uh, the way that we have at this point. So, what I would like to do, uh, I would like to open up the rest of this session to interact with you and answer the questions that i'm sure that you have hopefully uh we can get more information for the short period of time that we have left um and questions yes
2: before before we open up the the questions how many of you are or were involved in law enforcement we only have ten minutes any okay um In my other life, after I got out of the military, um, I was a New York City detective for 22 years. And in that 22 years of being a detective, I worked in homicide, rape, robbery, burglary, larceny, major crime. And even those of you that work in the medical field and know that when you go down to the morgue, and you're dealing with gunshot wounds to the body, to the head, and x-rays are taken, you know there's no such thing as nothing showing up on the x-rays, because anytime a projectile enters the body, you know that there's always trace evidence. And it shows up like diamonds. When you take an x-ray, it's like diamonds because As it enters the body, particles from that projectile will show up on an x-ray. So one of the things that that should tell you is that the body was either sanitized and things were removed before it got to Bethesda Naval Hospital. Here. Okay. Let's go to the questions. We only have five
1: minutes. I apologize. Um, we only have approximately five minutes left, but we will take as many questions. Yes? I oh, say Okay. Mm-hmm. I have done a lot of bottom-ups. Okay.
2: the bucket with
1: the formula, infused or not infused, before we determine the entrance and the exit We, um, our normal policy was that we did not weigh the brain. Uh, it was placed, it was infused, the brain was, once it was infused, and it was infused during the time that we were doing the autopsy. It was put into the bucket at the end of the autopsy. The lid was put on it. It was put in the brain room for the supplemental autopsy. Uh, with infusion, we could do that uh, within shorter period of time, three, four days, uh, as opposed to the lengthy time it would take by just dropping it in. That was the procedure that we followed at Bethesda. We followed a similar procedure in Philadelphia at a naval hospital there. Uh, We actually never infused the brains uh, at the medical center uh, in Mississippi, where I trained, uh, where I did my graduate work. Uh, It was just techniques. Now, I understand what you're saying, because I, I I believe and that what you're doing is the proper way to do it, but we very rarely actually did a forensic autopsy. My feeling and opinion is that we did, that autopsy was done at Bethesda Hospital because we were military, we could control the information, it could be controlled. Uh, Paul and I were given orders by the Department of the Navy, the Department of Defense, not to discuss this on the penalty of court martial, and those orders were only rescinded in 1977-76 when we were we were asked to do a deposition for the House Select Committee. I'm. This is the military we're talking about. We're. We're, it's the military uh, the it's the military
2: excuse me Jim. Sure. Well, yes. have you ever been in the military pardon okay i uh, let me let me just explain this to you, but you are- i no I, under- uh, okay. I understand and jim no, understands no, what you're saying no, let me let me think.
1: okay i'm i'm not arguing with you uh, uh in in civilian life we would probably would have been classified as deaners, yes. But this is a medical... it is, it is, and you know, you have to accept the fact is that that the pathologists that were required and assigned to do this were not forensic pathologists. The only pathology that had any experience in in body wounds was Doctor Fink. I'm I, I'm not I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you. I mean garbage collection. <laughs> right. Jim was twenty one years old in the military at the time and he was <laughs> let's hear you know. some other questions. A a okay. Ladies, ladies, uh, ladies. money yes. I have a two part question. Sure, sure. The first is could you describe the approximate size of Uh, something similar to that. Uh, the, I have to say that, that the wound that I saw uh, and actually was well defined after the, the scalp was reflected back from it was uh, pretty much in agreement with the, with the um, Parkland doctors. Uh, part, part two is this as David Lipton has emphasized in the official autopsy department, that's It's a much larger wound. It's virtually the entire back of the head. Account for the discrepancy. It's, I think the, the statement from it was the, the entire back of the head, um, is not really. I think that's a perception. The wound itself, the wound itself, was approximately three, three and a half inches long, one and a half to two inches wide. And um, it was it encompassed mostly acceptable for idle. Thank you for
0: listening to episode ninety-four of JFK: The Enduring Secret.